welcome back to the Lawali Life podcast. I'm so excited to have you join me for season two of the podcast. If you haven't tuned in already, I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is based purely around stress and loss, and it's a mixture of conversations with incredible people talking about the greatest stresses and losses they've had to overcome and how they came back from that. Stress and loss is a fate we all share to go through stress and to experience losses. And this podcast aims to open up the conversation around two things that a lot of people either avoid dealing with or avoid talking about. So this is what I want to do, shed a light on them, find out about other people's experiences and how they came back from them and give you inspiration so that you feel like you can get through any challenge of yours. I'm so excited to bring you today's podcast guest. Today I have the amazing Mo Gaudat. Mo is the former chief business officer of Google X. He's an entrepreneur and the author of the best-selling book, Soul for Happy. Mo developed essentially a happiness formula that worked after he realized that all his incredible successes hadn't brought him the happiness that he desired, and so his happiness formula was born. After that, sadly, it was put to its own test when his son, Ali, died of a routine operation at just age 21. After Ali died, Mo started to write the book, Soul for Happy, and his happiness movement was born. He really is an incredible human to speak to. I really hope you enjoy this conversation where he shares all his amazing insights and wisdom. It's so rare to meet someone who is so incredibly intelligent, but has the matched emotional intelligence and empathy. And really just is inspiring to be around in that way and I really hope you listen to his conversation hear his insights and wisdom and feel happier after listening to it and I hope you enjoy excited to have our guest today on the podcast. We have the incredible Mo Gaudat, who I just, I'm such a fan of your work, Mo. I, I just have to say, like, when I first read the first chapter of your book, I just cried. I thought it was so moving, um, even so at the sorry. beginning. It smiled throughout, but the beginning I just found so moving, the intention and the story behind it and um, I'm really looking forward to getting into all of that today and you know why you wrote it and telling people even more about that but to start with I would um, I'd love to just go back first and you know talk about what it was that made you get into that logical side of the world first that tech side you know it's so different to say writing about happiness now so were you purely logic back then and what was that for you? I, I don't know if you want the logical answer or the answer I now feel because um, I, I, you know, I think each and every one of us has both sides. Uh, you know, I actually, when I do those HR tests, you know, and surveys and what have you, I used to come up dead in the center between EQ and IQ. Yet, of course, um, you know how it is, you know, where I grew up in Egypt, they go like, oh, you can either be a doctor or an engineer, everyone else is not going to make money. So you just have to go for one of those two. And so I ended up in the, you know, I, I always loved mathematics and physics and, you know, science in general, but I ended up being an engineer, which was like the closest you can get uh, to being a physicist, but still make money. 
And so, uh, you know, you, you start to get trained, if you want, to be logical, to be uh, dependent on your left uh, side of your brain, to be uh, linear in your thinking. And, you know, then it became worse. I became, uh, I was always a software developer, so code had to compile, so you become a perfectionist. And then I became a businessman, so you start to become sort of greedy, a maximizer, if you want. You want to, uh, to have everything deliver as much as it can deliver. And that was a lethal combination. And I say that openly, even though I'm still quite, you know, active in my businesses today and startups and so on, that we as humans, I, I believe, tend to, uh, uh, because of the way the modern world is set, we capitalize more on the left side of our brain, the, the masculine side of our brain, if I may say. And, uh, and in doing so, we, um, we forego what I actually call prime intelligence. So in the last four and a half years, to be very specific, I started to, I've always been a reasonably balanced person between feminine and masculine, but I started to sort of empower my feminine a lot more. And my God, Alice, you are geniuses. Like when you really, really, I'm not seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that it's not a compliment. There is a form of intelligence that doesn't happen in the brain, okay? And it's so much more intelligent when you start to actually get it, right? Because it's not always easy to express in words. It's not always linear. Sometimes it's paradoxical. And it's not just logic. It's, it's a logic mixed with sensations, mixed with intuition, mixed with emotions, mixed with a lot of things, right? And... and um, and somehow, when you get it, you realize how much more intelligent you can become if you allowed yourself to follow both, to, to utilize both. And in, in a more interesting way, if you allowed yourself to have privacy and decency, so if you, if you allowed yourself to think in the feminine first, then the masculine uh, is where I found, uh, now I believe, my, I, my peak performance, if you want. Uh, not logical, but logical after... Uh, after after being intuitive, after being open to creativity, to paradoxical thinking, and so on. And yeah, I absolutely love that because it's so true. You know, and today we put so much mm -hmm. emphasis in the outside world on logic, and I'm such a big believer in logic and spirituality combined, and that we all have feminine and masculine energies within us. You know, yin and yang, and it's about finding that balance and accessing both. So I love that yeah. you say that. So I always ask everyone this question to start at the beginning of the podcast, and though I believe I know your answer from reading your book, um, what is the greatest stress or loss you've personally had to overcome, and how did you come back from that? Uh, you'd be surprised. The biggest stress or loss uh, I've ever come across wasn't the loss of my child, actually. Uh, I, 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 I viewed the loss of my child, I think I was prepared when he left, so it was, it was, it's still the most painful experience of my life. And still today, it's the biggest pain I feel every day. He's, he's actually been around in the last few days, sending me a few very clear messages. And so, uh, you know, it's, I get really emotional at those times. But, uh, but um, you know, I was prepared. I, was, I had already by then done maybe 19 years of really, really, really... Uh, tedious work on my self-development, my personal, my personal development, my ability for ability of committed acceptance and so on, things that I talk about uh, in the book. I, I have to say, I, uh, I think my biggest 
person and boss has been I did it that I didn't start any earlier. Uh, what I'm doing now with my life is so much more rewarding, so much more impactful, so much more meaningful and worthwhile. Uh, and I only started to do it when he left. And, uh, and I only started to do it, um, you know, I, I, I say that very rarely, I don't talk about it publicly, but I wrote the, the notes for Soft for Happy back in 2011. And, uh, you know, I was the chief business officer of Google X at the time. You know, I was busy, like running around and doing stuff, and I just kept putting it off, kept delaying it, and I kept delaying it. And, it, you know, when I, when I write, normally if the structure is written, if the, I call it the skeleton, uh, you know, it's easy to write afterwards, but I just kept putting it off. And I don't know if life or Ali uh, sort of chose to leave life. Uh, I mean, he, he, of course, just for those who don't know, I, I lost him really due to medical error. It wasn't his choice at all. But I tend to believe that when it's time for us to leave life, we get asked at least a ton of research uh, about uh, near-death experiences will tell you that those who return from that near-death experience will always mention that they were asked if they were to go or to stay uh, or to return in that case. And, and, uh, and I believe that Ali, with his wisdom, uh, knew that this would launch me into what actually happened. Uh, you know, and, and the events leading to his loss, loss really, really triggered the idea of me sitting down to write what he taught me. And I will tell you, and I know people will think I'm crazy, as much as it hurts, and it never goes away. Anyone who's ever lost a child will tell you the pain never goes away. It's just, it's, a, it's almost a physical, like I feel specifically the bottom right-hand side of my heart missing. And it's in a very specific point in my body, and it is recurring, and it's pain, right? But, but when you really, really think about it, I believe that if Ali knew what would happen as a result of his departure, he would have definitely chose to leave. I mean, we've reached tens of millions of people with a message that, that basically says you can, you can be happy, you can choose to be happy, and you can do what it takes, and then you'll eventually be happy. And isn't that a better world? I mean, it's a horrible world without Ali in it, but it's a better world for all the the peace that came to people's hearts as a result. Yeah, I mean, it is just, I really resonated with that in your book. I think that's why I sort of cried at the beginning, even though the whole book made me very happy. Um, because I think doing work from a place of, say, pain or loss of people you love, um, which is why I now do the work I do, just trying to help people afterwards with stress from having lost my dad to stress and he became like you said actually the exact same losing his daughter he said he felt an actual piece of his heart was missing and I think that like you say it's a loss that never goes away but when you can mm -hmm. move it into something that can change the world in such an impactful way like you have it's such an amazing amazingly written written tribute as well as a, an equation to happiness so I just loved I loved reading your book in that sense Thank you. I, I actually believe that every one of us can turn every negative emotion into. It doesn't have to change the world. You see, when I when I when I wrote "So for Happy," I didn't know how far it would go, right? But even if it made you happy, 
Alice, then, then that's enough, right? And I think the idea, I was taught afterwards, you know, after, after, after Software Happy, I was traveling the world constantly to, to spread the message. And I, you know, I speak to a lot of happiness gurus and sages and, you know, or even on my podcast on, on Slow Mo, I meet the most amazing, wisest people, right? And, and for all of them, uh, without exception, they realize that there is that little thing. They, they call, you know, in, the, in Buddhism, they call it the Bodhisattva class, which is basically someone that, that dedicates their life to make something a little better, okay? And, and you know, and it, it's not about succeeding in doing that. It's about the drive of turning negativity in your life into something positive, right? Even if that positivity just impacts your cat. You know what I mean? It, it, it really is, and I think people miss that. We take the negative and we let it, let it weigh us down instead of actually taking the negative and saying, okay, you know what? Okay, life, I'm going to do something about this. I'm, I'm going to turn this positive, right? You know, every, every morning when I wake up, I mean, not, not, not as often, but maybe three, four times a week, I wake up in the morning and I go like, boom, Ali died, right? And, and in my heart, when that pain registers... I say, okay, so we're going to have to make a thousand people happy today, right? And, and there is a way to systemically turn, uh, turn that pain into positive energy. And I think that is what our world needs most. Yeah, I love that. What would you say is the greatest thing that losing Ali showed you personally? The amount of love, Alice, it's crazy how much love I feel. How much I love, how much love I feel for everything is stupid. It's like really stupid. It is just, I was watching Love Actually yesterday again. Like, what Middle Eastern man with a beard and a bald head watches Love Actually three times a year? It's like, it's, but that's not the thing. The thing is the amount of love I receive. So I, so, so I was definitely the biggest love of my life. We, we know that. I think a lot of people who know me know that. You know, of course, that doesn't take away from how much I love his mother, my wonderful ex-wife, or how much I love my daughter. But he definitely had a very special place for me. And having lost his love, forget losing his physical form, huh? that if you've ever had a chance to hug that boy, I promise you it was an experience of a lifetime. Right? It's like there was this big successful chief business officer of a, of, a, of a train that I was. And then you put me in Ali's hug and I'm like, oh, I want to stay there, right? And, and, and that, when that was taken away, I actually believe in my, in my mind clearly the one thing that I missed most was him, was his love, right? Mm. And, and then it was replaced with the love of thousands of people, like the num amount of love I feel. Hmm? From, from people just, you know, saying, thank you, I've read your book, it made a difference, or I listened listen to your podcast and that guest changed my life, or I, you know, or people that just walk to me and say, I just love Ali. And they've never met him. They don't know anything about him other than, you know, my love for him, which was shown in the book. And, and you know, it's just the amount of love out there is, is just overwhelming. It's, it is really, really, really a blessing. And, and so surprising as it sounds, you know, eventually I think by year three of losing him, 
I started to realize that I have absolutely no right to complain. I really don't. I mean, life took something from me and then replaced it with the same thing a million fold. Like, I don't know how, why I'm so blessed, but it's definitely not something to complain about. It's such an amazing, you know, an amazing perspective. And I think it's so, so important for people to hear, especially those grieving. I think that, you know, when we are in the depths of grief, we really do go into a place of despair and loss of hope. You know, those moments when you get into those, you know, as we know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's whole process of, you know, going into the depressive part of grief can be a really, really lonely, isolating place. So I'd love to talk to you before I get into sort of the different sides of your book and the happiness talking about loss and grief itself, what would you say in terms of, because I feel as a society, grief's quite misunderstood in some ways in that it can be very isolating for people. I find it very funny that the one fate we all share is to die and to know someone that's died, really. And yet some people find it so awkward (laughs) that it's like as if it's never going to happen to them. So, you know, what's your view on that? Like, why do people find it so awkward and how can we change that? So, so the, 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 I, it's actually not correct when we say everyone or many people. The truth is the majority of the world outside the, the Western world treats death very differently. As a matter of fact, you know, you, you look at Mexicans and how they celebrate death. There is the, the, the Day of the Dead every year. You know, the Sufis would actually uh, have a party. Uh, you know, if you ask a, a grieving mother, she would say, this is like the wedding day of my son or my daughter, right? Uh, and, and, and there is, a, um, there is a, a different perception of death outside the West. The West in the West, we avoid talking about it because it, it scares us, right? Now, I, in all of my work, even though I'm reasonably spiritual and even reasonably religious, even though I don't follow a specific religion, I follow a fruit salad of religions, if you want. Uh, you know, I, 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 I avoid talking about those top topics from a spiritual or a religious point of view because they um, come in fable format. That is actually logical, but that turns a few people off, especially in the West. Death to me is a scientific question, okay? And a scientific question that's not hard to untangle. It is actually quite straightforward. If you if you have a basic understanding of the theory of relativity and the idea of space-time, a basic understanding of quantum physics and how the uncertainty principle and the fact that you need life to observe the physical for the physical to exist, you would you would quickly come to the conclusion. I don't know how scientific your audience is, so maybe we shouldn't go into this. But the conclusion is very straightforward. Life existed before the physical. It's not that we became a physical being, and for that we needed life to be part of us. Okay, it's the other way around. It's the, it, it is you are alive uh, before your physical form, and you're alive after your physical form. Death is not the opposite of life. Death is the opposite of birth. Right. So if you if you can imagine that you're in a in a video game and you're starting a specific level. That level comes through a portal that is called birth, and then you exit that level through another portal that's called death, right? But you're alive during, before, and after. And, and when, you, when you understand it that way, you know, and, and you don't have to be very scientific to understand that you have many experiences in your life, in your physical life, 
that are not physical at all. Okay, so the experience of love is not physical. The experience of intimacy is not physical, uh, even though we associate it with sex, but it's not physical. It's that that deep connection is not physical. Mm -hmm. It is triggered by a touch, but it's it's not felt in the physical form, right? You, the, the experience of dreaming. Mm -hmm. So so we we have a full life. Many of us even a richer life when we are not in our physical form sleeping. Uh, when we are when we are flying or floating or interacting or feeling scared, and all of those are not physical experiences. Now, if you really get that, you realize that, at least in my view, huh, our life here in this on this planet is 60, 70, 90 years. And then because the other life that is non-physical does not have physical laws that apply to it, then its lifespan, by definition, is not governed by time, okay? So its lifespan is eternity. This is what religions talk about. Huh? But it is, in reality, a, a subject-object relationship. So if, if you, if you, if you want to observe planet Earth, you have to fly outside it and send us a picture of it. As long as you're within it, you can't observe it, right? And similarly, if you want to observe the passage of time, to, to, to experience the arrow of time, you have to exist outside of it. Right? Time is a physical property of the physical universe. When your real being, which is not physical, the one that dreams, the one that loves, the one that is conscious, the one that is aware, when that being experiences time, it experiences because of the same subject-object relationship, because of a vantage point. It exists outside of it. And so in the absence of time, that becomes eternity. Eternity is not a very long time. Eternity is the absence of time. Now, Ali lived here 21 years. I will live here, say, 70. Say, okay? Hmm? 20 over 70 seems to be a massive difference. It's like, oh, you know, that's not fair for Ali. But 20 over, in, you know, eternity is very, very similar to 70 over eternity. There is really no difference in our life, you know, the, the life I will live after Ali left us hmm, is going to go like that. And in the bigger scheme of thing of who I am, who I really am, beyond this physical form, that life is insignificant. You know, this, this bigger life, the baseline that we live in is so much bigger than this physical life that is so short. When you, dis when you experience death this way, you realize that there is only one thing certain about this. We don't know when we, where we will go after we die. We don't know if the Abrahamic religions are right or wrong, or if we're going to come back to play the same level again in, you know, in, in terms of the incarnation. We don't know if we're going to end up with nothing. Okay? What we know for certain is that I am more likely to end up where Ali is today hmm, than I am staying alive for one more day. The probability, the certainty around me knowing that I can actually finish this conversation with you is lower than the certainty that I have that one day I will leave, right? And so my son is there and I'm just delaying it, right? But sooner or later I'll be there too. Will I ever get that beautiful hug again? Sadly not, because that beautiful hug was part of the physical world. But what was, what was that beautiful hug all about? It was about the connection. And believe it or not, 
even though his physical form left us for more than six years now, I still feel the same, the same connection. I can definitely believe that. I, I feel a connection to the people I've lost. And I think that it's, a, it's an amazing feeling when you get to that place of feeling like they are still you know, around. So, I mean, for you, how do you connect to Ali? Yeah, I'm a math guy. So we agree the path somehow. And, uh, you, know, you remember the, the last chapter of the book about music. So we connect over music and, uh, and we've somehow, because of my math skills, agree the pattern and it's a very accurate pattern, believe it or not. And so he communicates to me in lyrics. And so he sends lyrics. Uh, it's, not, it's like a bit like the Enigma machine, if you want, but it's unmistakable. I mean, the messages, I, I don't know if people know that, I may have said it a, a few times, I promise you, on Ali's uh, um, birthday, January 14th, 2020, he sent me the following words. He said, everybody knows the plague is coming. Everybody knows it's moving fast. Okay? And, and I actually texted the same night to my coach, and I said, what does he mean by that? She said, I don't know, maybe something's going to go wrong with you. Okay? So, I, I, and, I, and I don't want to appear, so I avoid trying to appear as a non-scientific person, right? But the truth is, there is so much we don't understand. There is so much we, and, and, I, and I can't prove it. Maybe my brain is clever enough to have detected that there is something coming, right? And I assumed that this is my son. Or maybe there is a way for him to communicate to me. I don't know, right? Either way, Damn, Ali just sends very accurate messages. It's like, really, something's there. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? I actually, I got goosebumps when you said that because I felt it was, it was so true. And, it's uh, really weird, yeah. It, it's amazing. I think I loved it, actually, you said in your book, I love that phrase that you said, just because you can't prove something is true doesn't mean that it's not. Well, <laughs> and I just thought that's such a good way of putting it because... It's almost it's arrogant as humans to believe that we know everything, so something can't be true <laughs> if we can't you, prove you it. See, yeah, you see, Alice, we, we, we are very a very religious species. Even though we, uh, we sort of demonize you know, certain religions, science is a religion, atheism is a religion, everything is a religion, okay? And the scientific method is the biggest religion of our time. And the scientific method like every other religion, has a few very big faults with it, okay? And the truth is the scientific method will say, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist, okay? But the truth is you can't measure love, and it exists. You can't, you, you know, for many, many years, you couldn't measure uh, 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 broadcast wave, radio waves, right? And it existed. And, you know, the funny bit is that until 1967, if I'm, if I'm accurate, we, we thought that 3% that, that of the universe, which were the planets and galaxies and so on, was the entire universe and that the rest we called what? Vacuum. Vacuum is nothingness. Basically saying, because we don't see it, it doesn't exist. And then in 1967, uh, you know, we, we, we realized, holy cow, you know, Einstein's equation back in 1905 had that cosmological constant that basically said, no, 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 it's not vacuum, it's plain solid. It's like, it's dark matter, dark energy, and it's 97% of the universe. And we just called it nothing because we couldn't measure it. 
Which is so funny and ironic, really, isn't it? And now we know all about it. (laughs) Exactly. And now now we go and look back at those guys that said it was vacuum and say, idiots. Like, yeah, seriously. So why are you assuming that you know something now so strongly when in reality you might actually be (laughs) idiots, right? I mean, the truth is we don't know. The truth is there is so little we know. Uh, You know, Confucius says that you know, true knowledge is to understand the extent of one's ignorance. Hmm? And, you know, I have uh, one of the books I wrote three chapters on. I work on several books at the same time. One of the dearest books to my heart is a book I call Compartment 2. And Compartment 2 is the idea that there is so much we don't know, but we are taught that we either know or we don't, that something is right or wrong, right? But then, but then there is so much gray in the middle. Hmm? You know, if you, if you tell me... Uh, um, uh, do we, you know, do we know what happens to us after we die? No. Um, I actually, you know, people, some religious people will claim that they do. Uh, some atheists will claim that they do. But none of us actually can prove it, right? And the, and the truth is, when you really think about it, when you don't know, I put that in a place that is not right or wrong, hmm? not true or false. I put it in a place that I call compartment two. And in my brain, I have a little box where I put all of the stuff that I don't know in, okay, and then make assumptions and solutions for my life based on that. If I don't know if it's reincarnation or heaven and hell, I might as well solve life for both of them, okay? If I don't know if it's reincarnation or nothingness, I might as well solve life for both of them. It's a, it's a simple but logical way of actually trying to maximize your outcome out of life. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It, like you say, it's simple and logical, but it's also, it's like an emotional surrender. It's very open to the fact oh, that yeah. you, you know, it's neither or. So it, it has to be sort of in the middle until, you know, something can yeah. be decided on, which I love. So I've been talking about surrender because, you know, you talk about control in your book and we as humans, as we all know, are obsessed with the need to control. And I think particularly this year, <laughs> everyone realizing how uncertain the world is and them being not able to control things has really thrown people. So how do you personally practice the art of surrender? I, I you know, you know, I, I, I used to be as, uh, I'm now a retired control freak, as I say. Right? So I, I, I'm, I'm the worst, the worst. I used to be the worst of the worst. Poor Mirelle, I, you know, I, I keep saying that as my formal apology to her in front of millions. I used to give her a spreadsheet uh, on when to wash the whites and when to wash the colors. <laughs> I swear to you, it's true, right? And <laughs> Nivelle is pure wisdom. And so she's she's the ultimate feminine. And so she's quite nurturing, but she's also, she, you know, she's able to contain me and go like, of course, Habibi, of course, I will use it, right? And then ignore me completely, right? And, and, and the truth is, hmm, Nothing went wrong in my life when she didn't use it. It was the obsession in my head that wanted to control the tiniest outcome, including the amount of soap we have in the water coming out of the washing machine in favor of the planet, right? Wonderful intentions, but seriously, can we be reasonable about control? Because again, I mean, I don't know why our conversation today is so scientific, but But the truth of the way that the universe is built is around the concept uh, that's, you know, very, very clear in the second law law of thermodynamics that is called entropy. So everything 
in everything you've ever known hmm, is not part of what many shallow viewers of science will talk about, which is that everything is evolving and, and you know, uh, following a, 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 you know, a, a set improvement. You know, we don't become uh, better all the time. The universe, as a matter of fact, is, is designed the opposite way. It's designed to decay and break down. Entropy is the tendency of things left out of control to completely go out of control. So you break an egg and it will go into 600 million little pieces, right? And, and if, you, you know, if, you, if you really do the math of it, one of the configurations of the 600 million could bring the egg back together so that the molecular forces of the shell put it together and it's a full egg again, okay? But think about the mathematics of this. The probability of that is zero. So this is why every egg breaks but never unbreaks. Every you know uh, uh, um, um, bush that is left unhedged will go wild. Every you know uh, um, um, glass that you break breaks and never comes back, and so on and so forth. Our universe has the tendency to get out of control, okay? And and it goes out of control in ways that are measurable. Huh? So chaos theory measures that. The work of Nassim Taleb and black swans, which are you know, very rare events in, in occurrence, but very, very high in impact, like COVID-19 is a black swan, if you want, you know, that changes our life upside down and the, the occurrence of butterfly effects, you know, tiny little changes in the, in the data that ends up making us go way off track, right? And, and you put all of that together and you realize we have zero control, like nothing. We have no control whatsoever. You know, I, I, I always laugh at it because I had insurance policies for Ali and then uh, uh, properties for him to rent, properties for him to, uh, uh, to live in if he wanted to. Uh, I had businesses started in the majors that he took and he changed majors three times, okay? So I had to start three businesses so that when he graduates, you know, he, he takes one of them and runs it. Right? I love him and I planned everything for him, had his tuition fee saved up when he was four years old, and then he dies. Like, oops, who, 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 you know, what kind of control is that? Who expects that? And life breaks down all the time. And, and, and the biggest, one of the biggest pains, you, you know, for that, that break your happiness equation. Remember, my happiness equation is very straightforward. You're unhappy when life misses your expectations. Okay? Your, your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should behave. And so when your expectations from life are expectations of control, good luck. You're constantly miserable, right? If, you, if you're expecting that my wonderful, wonderful wife who's doing a million other things is going to also focus on a spreadsheet uh, that is going to help her, uh, uh, you know, wash at 7.30, not at 7. Uh, big load, not a small load. You know, that's, that's a stupid expectation. And so all of the effort I'm putting in tires me out, and all of the disappointment makes me unhappy. And this is what we're experiencing in COVID-19. Hmm? Because, because, you know, I, I believe the three biggest illusions that affect us in COVID-19 is the illusion of control, the illusion of knowledge, and the illusion of fear. Right? And, and, and the idea of control is that for some reason, for some reason, we humanity thought that we've conquered everything. 
that we can take charge of anything and nothing is going to upset our plans to go to the, to go to the pub, right? Like seriously, I mean, when did you get that impression? I mean, viruses exist and they will continue to exist and they will show up every now and then and markets will crash and they've always crashed and you know it, it will happen every now and then and you know and and, and somehow you have to be, to be prepared that life is going to get out of control like a video game occasionally gets very difficult otherwise it's boring like hell right and 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 can we can we accept that and do what we're supposed to do which is to attempt to make the situation the best of a situation despite the fact that it's constantly constantly out of control yeah it's so true it's so true it's like, why do we always expect things to not happen and then be surprised when they do it I, I don't know i don't know what's wrong with our math skill i mean like ask yourself how how many times did you actually manage to control anything at all no nothing like i mean it's always like, seriously Seriously, think think about your boyfriend. Like everyone wants to to have their boyfriend show up in time, uh, you know, with flowers, uh, exactly the right flowers, with the right smile and a big hug, and you know, know that your left foot needs to be massaged today. Good luck. You know, when when is <laughs> when is it going to happen? And and how many references do we need to know? How do we need to receive? How many references do we need to receive that the tube is going to be late? Until we say, oh, by the way, we can't plan that the you know that there, that there is a control methodology that the tube is going to show up on time. Yeah, it's so it's so true. It's so yeah. true. It's <laughs> constant like push and pull. We'd be a lot happier if we just yeah let go of it all. Chill, like you say. <laughs> chill, chill, chill. I swear to you. So for many of my friends who are also like me, control freaks. Hmm, you know, they come to me every now and then and they give me a very long talk about something that's going wrong in their life. And then I answer and I say, look, I have one word for you. Chill. Seriously, chill. Life is not worth it. 99% of the things we obsess about are irrelevant. So true. So true. What was the changing point for you personally with like your need to control things? As in when did you suddenly think, okay, I really need to stop doing this? So, so to, to me, control was a was a process, really. Uh, you know, it is. Uh, it's so so control really fools you when you have a career like mine, right? Because again, engineer, so everything has to be perfect. Uh, software engineer, so every line of code you write, ninety thousand right lines of code. In my old years, we actually wrote code. We would write syntax ourselves. Type, 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 type. Ninety thousand lines. And if one character is wrong, the code doesn't compile. Okay, and yeah, and we didn't have visual tools like you know we started to have later. You literally had to read the ninety thousand lines and find out what was wrong. Okay, so you you could you develop that obsession of everything has to be perfect, mm -hmm. right? And then it just doesn't take a long time to realize, damn, nothing is ever perfect, right? And and if you're smart enough, you go like. Can I just give up on this? And I have to tell you openly, my first steps on control was attempt, was were, were attempts to actually, uh, you know, exercise more control on fewer things. So, so the logical path of people who are control freakish after a while is they recognize that not everything is is controllable. Not because that's, you know, in in their mind they think everything's controllable. They just don't have the time for it. 
right? And so in my, in my mind, I was like, yeah, yeah, I can control everything, but let me control the top 10% first, right? And just as you start to drop things out, something amazing hits you, that the 90% didn't kill you, okay? The stuff that you gave up on completely actually went really well, probably better than when you were trying to hold it in place, right? And then, and, and that the things that went out of control and, you know, messed things up, they messed them up in such a beautiful way. It's like, oh my God, you know, the, you know, I, you were late to that, uh, to that appointment. And then, you know, you had to wait uh, for, for uh, whatever. And then you met this very cute woman that told you the most amazing thing. And it turned into a wonderful love story. And you go like, oh, wow, if I had controlled that thing, it wouldn't have happened, right? And, and so you start to realize, oh, it's interesting. You know, when, when things go out of control, it's not, not always a bad thing. But then I think the biggest thing is when you start to logically understand why are you trying to control? And, and when you really start to understand, you start to say to yourself, okay, hold on, hold on. Things will go out of control. That doesn't mean that the outcome will be bad. What I can do is what I, is what I call committed acceptance. Committed acceptance is, look, if something goes out of control, my first immediate reaction, instead of being upset about it, is I will try to fix it, right? If I can't fix it, like Ali left, Ali died, I can't bring him back. There is no way you can bring him back. I can hit my head against the wall for 27 years, and on my deathbed, he's still not going to be there, right? And so what do I do? I accept. I say, okay, fine. Wish I could control this. Didn't control it. It's no longer part of my physical life. What can I do now to make life better, despite the fact that things became not what I wanted to control them for, control it for? Okay? But how can I make my life and the life of others better, despite the fact that things went out of control? That approach to committed acceptance makes life really, really easy. It makes you a true gamer. Remember, one of my biggest education from Ali is he taught me through video games. Okay? And when, when, he, when, we, when you're a true gamer, hmm, true gamers are chill. We're chill. We really are. We don't care if we finish the level. Okay? We don't care if every shot is, is exactly registered where it is. Okay? And we don't care, by the way, if we're defeated 200,000 times. Real gamers, hmm, and I promise you this is the truth, huh? you, you enter into a, a, a strange corner and it's, you're surrounded by enemies and... And what do you do? You, you get shot every 60 seconds, and you start again, you start again, you start again, you start again. And you love it. You love that you're starting again, almost like you love dancing tango. Why? Because life is about that dance. It's about me trying and then trying again and then trying again. And if it goes out of control, well, more chances for me to try. Why not? Yeah, it's so true. It's so nice. You say it's the game of life, as everyone says. And on that topic, actually, you talk about dealing, you know, a hand of cards. Everyone gets dealt a hand of cards. Do you believe that, you know, the hand that we're dealt, that everyone is always going to have a sort of a set path almost that they can't control and that they have to sort of go with? No. Again, one of those books that I wrote, wrote three chapters in. <laughs> I, I need to finish those books. Uh, I wrote a, a, a three chapters and very, very, very dear book again called Understanding Fate. And Understanding Fate uh, is a simple approach to try 
to understand that the concept of are we less distant or, are, or do we have a choice? Hmm? Um, and the truth, uh, Alice, is uh, you chose to wear this very elegant black shirt today. That was your choice, right? It, you, you, I can't deny that. You opened your, you know, your, uh, your wardrobe, you looked at your closet, do you call it? I don't remember in Britain. Uh, right? Wardrobe, so you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You opened your wardrobe, you looked at all of those options, you said, mm, orange, too bright for the podcast, you know, black looks elegant, which earrings, you choose those things, right? So clearly, we have, um, we have agency, we have uh, um, uh, free will, okay? Uh, even if you want to call it micro free will on the, on the small universe that surrounds you, yes, you do, right? The challenge is... And, and, on a, and let's let's say, and your free will will impact your life, right? So if you if you had chosen orange, maybe my eyes would have been a little too dazzled, and I wouldn't be able to focus, right? Whatever. Hmm? So 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 it would affect the outcome of your podcast. Hmm? Uh, now that free will is not your dis- destiny because of what? Because of two other free wills in the equation. Your destiny is your free will, the sigma of your free will the free will of all other beings and the free will of the universe, right? And if you add all three up, you end up in a place hmm, where something happens that is dictated partially by what, by what you chose, but partially by maybe the laundry person that you sent your, your black shirt to decided not to wash it in time or not to clean it in time, right? It's their free will and their free will affects yours. Right? Uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone uh, dropped something on it yesterday. That's their free will and it's not yours. And there is the free will of the universe, right? You, you're, the, the entire wardrobe may have collapsed, right? Or, you know, some bug from somewhere decided to eat through your, your black shirt, right? You add all of those three up and you end up with destiny. Now, the, the, we, we are constantly playing, constantly Playing. We make those little choices. And clever players have more agency, not only on their free will, but the free will of others and the free will of the universe. Right? And that is, these are the true gamers. So the true gamers understand that by being nice to the laundry person, the laundry person is going to make that make their work a priority. Okay. So or, or by showing up to the to to uh, to uh, you know, um, to to put, to collect it before six p.m. before they close down, uh, you know, close their shops. You're more likely to be they, they're more likely to be nice to you. You can influence the free will of others, okay? And you can influence the free will of the universe. Again, you know, I'm not talking about the spiritual spiritual side of it, which is you know, you manifest what you want, and you know, the the, the worst book written in history of humanity, but. But quite a, a good concept was the secret. If you remember, it's a horribly written book, uh, but it's true, right? You can actually manifest your life. I, I always say you get what you expect from life. Now, manifestation is not spiritual jargon and, and, and voodoo. Manifestation is the true reality of quantum physics. This is exactly, exactly what the uncertainty principle dictates. You will only collapse the wave function of the probability wave function of particles that you observe, okay? What you observe happens. And because of that, you don't, because, because what you observe, you don't observe with your eyes, you observe with your consciousness. You can actually observe a life that you want. 
You can observe a partner that will make you happy and you would manifest them. They would show up. You can, you can, you can observe a job that, you're, that would actually uh, uh, enrich you and fulfill you. And if you observe it with the certainty that quantum physics requires, which is I see it as if it already happened, it will happen. And, and again, you know, today might be my, uh, my non-scientific conversation, but I have many references in my life where I manifested anything you can think of, from places to live, to money, on a specific date, in a specific amount, to a, speci a, sp a specific kind of girlfriend that I was hoping to have in my life. And you can actually manifest those things, right? You manifest them by, by affecting the will of the universe by actually believing and using the laws of the universe, the laws of, of, of basically collapsing the wave function, okay? And observing things and making them happen. Yeah, I love that. And it's also, it comes around to the whole, I don't know, the situation with our minds where we have so many negative thoughts and we really have to reprogram that to have the positive side to take over instead, because otherwise we are riddled with negativity. Um, so, that's obviously like almost a self-fulfilling prophecy and people say, well, I never totally. get what I want. Well, that's because you're never thinking about what you want. You'll never, you know. Not only that, because, you, because you've manifested, I never get what I want. Yeah. Do, do you understand? So, so when, when you tell yourself, I'm never gonna meet the man of my life, by definition, you've manifested a scenario where the universe is hearing you saying, never gonna meet the man of my life. You're manifesting yourself old and wrinkly, sitting somewhere alone, feeling bitter. That's what you're manifesting, right? While if you actually manifest and say, I'm going to have an amazing life. I'm going to have experiences. It's going to be wonderful, and it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It happens somehow. It happens partially because of quantum physics, but also it happens because of attention bias. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you walk out in the street and say, uh, all of them are ugly, right? And, and the most stunning, wonderful, handsome partner, prospect partner of yours uh, uh, passes by, you're not going to see them because your mindset is shutting them out. It's like, walk out the streets tomorrow and look for VW Beatles, right? Not very common, but I can guarantee you, if you started the day tomorrow looking for VW Beatles, you're going to see quite a few. Yeah. Can, 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 we, can we do that with our mind? Can we expect by the way, because there is evidence mm, that life is actually good. If you're here, if you're listening to us talking, mm, then you're alive. That on itself is, by the way, just we, we forget to have gratitude for that. You could have been dust now, but you're alive. You're listening to us and, you know, we're, we're having a wonderful chat and between two friends and you somehow managed through the, the technology to spy in on us, right? That's wonderful too. Okay, and somehow you can look at that device in your hand and go like, "Damn, I have a hundred pounds to spend on buying a, a small thing that you know I can that's colorful that I can swipe on." Good for you. So many people don't have that. And by the way, it might be raining like it always does in the UK, but at least it's not raining bombs on your head. Like when you really think about it, life has so far been okay. Been if you don't if you ask me, it's been wonderful for so many of us. If we only managed to enjoy the good part of it. It's wonderful. Yeah, I love I that. I can obsess for the rest of my life on, on losing Ali. I can obsess about that. 
and it's painful. But take all of the rest of it. I, you know, I, I have this weird turmeric latte in my hand, and I actually like it. Is it? You know, somehow I managed to get myself to like it, and I love it, and it's enjoyable. Yeah, life is to be lived. Everyone needs a turmeric latte. <laughs> Everyone delicious. needs a turmeric latte. To totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> you and I are, should start a small business, a list mall, and uh, you know, and, and we just sell turmeric lattes. And exactly. Make a, a 80 percent uh, uh, margin on those in food trucks. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> Before I, I'd love to ask you this question that I ask everyone, and I know you don't talk about religion. I don't talk about religion on the podcast, but I'd love to know what spirituality personally means to you, because I think the concept of it means something different to everyone, and that's why I love it. So for you being so logical based as well and having this open side to spirituality what does it personally mean to you why, why don't you talk about spirituality on the podcast no i do i always do i said i don't talk about religion <laughs> okay. i don't talk about religion <laughs> yeah. because on, on on my so 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 you know i'm like you i i get to meet the most amazing people on my podcast right so from from the absolute scientists so i, I you know in the last seven episodes i had a mega neuroscientist, Rick Hansen. Then I had, you know, then Siegel, and then I had Donald Robertson, who was a stoicist, right? And each of them looks at this topic, you know, and, and I can go on. I, 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 interview, I interviewed Edith Ader, who is a Holocaust survivor. Oh my God, her view of life and spirituality when your life has been saved when you're 62. Now, Every one of them looks at it differently. And somehow our ego, humanity, forces us to say, look, <laughs> you know, seems to be a smart person, but their view is different than mine. Stupid, stupid, they just don't get it yet, right? Now, there is no common view. Honestly, can I ask you what love is? I've actually asked a million people that question. Nobody, you know, there is that feeling in us. Hmm? Can you actually define it? Do you think that that the color blue for you hmm, is the same like the color blue for me? Do you think that mangoes taste the same to both of us, right? The, the way mangoes taste to me might be the way you taste chicken curry, and, and <laughs> but you love it nonetheless because you go like, mango, I miss it, right? That's, that's the way it is, huh? Here's the trick. The term spirit, like the term God, hmm, has been copyrighted by the religious establishment. It's like, okay, those are our brands, we're going to use them, right? And you guys are not allowed to interpret them in any other way. The, you know, the, the brand God is a guy with a beard who, you know, puts his finger down and appears to be similar to you, but tells you what to do. And the, the, the you know, the, the term spirit has to have wings. And, you know. So I, I have a very simple view of spirituality. I believe that we are made of a physical form, okay? and something else. I have no idea what that other thing is, but that thing, when it left Ali's physical form, he moved from being the most animated, handsome, wise, life, attractive, uh, 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 you know, in inclusive thing you've ever seen to being an inanimate object. An inanimate object that sadly, as much as it hurts me, decayed over a few days, dis disappeared. Right? Literally like a piece of meat that you buy from the supermarket. So that physical part of us, hmm, in my personal view, 
needs something that is not physical to be animated. If you've seen the movie Avatar, hmm? you know, Jake, uh, Jake Solly is sitting on one side and then that blue thing uh, is moving and feeling and loving and having sex and, you know, fighting and, right? And, and that, but, but the true intention, the true consciousness of that blue avatar is in Jake Solly sitting somewhere else, right? Now, all of science, all of philosophy, if you want, when it comes to our physical form, tries to focus on that physical existence. Hmm? Spirituality tries to focus on that other thing, that other guy. It's not a guy, it's not a, a, a masculine or feminine because masculine and feminine are properties of the physical, right? There is this other entity that makes you animated, makes you alive. Hmm? That entity, the study of which is called spirituality, okay? That entity, if you really think about it, I don't, I hope you don't mind me saying that, is much more valuable than your beautiful physical form, every one of us, okay? It's much more long lasting than your beautiful physical form. It's much more resilient and above all of the pain and suffering, above all of the trauma and above all of the expectation and above all of the control and the fear, right? It is, it is a much more refined, hmm? refined form of you, okay? My, my, my very wise and wonderful daughter, you know, basically says it in a very simple form. She says, it seems from all of the stories we've heard from religion, that this drop that animates you comes from a bigger ocean, okay? That we call the divine. Let's not call it God, or they will have a, a brand, uh, you know, copyright issue. Okay? <laughs> that, that 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 divine hmm, has dropped a part of the divine in you, and that made you alive. Okay. So you're a mix of something divine and something physical. Hmm? If you connect your physical life to the physical, you want more. Uh, uh, things and more material goods and better clothing and a more attractive partner and this and that and the other, you'll get stuck in the physical, okay? If you learn to refine yourself so that your divine part becomes your guide, okay? Compassion, empathy, love, uh, uh, good deeds, good karma, the things that are more associated with the divine and less associated with the physical, you will become more divine, okay? In, in Hindu religions, they say you are God, okay? And I say, no, you have the potential to be God, okay? You have the potential. You have a, a seed of that divine in you if you refine it, okay? The more you refine it, uh, my, my, my wonderful daughter says, hmm, the more you're ready to go back to the source, universal consciousness, divine, God, whatever you want to call it, the more, you know, it's like mixing water with oil doesn't mix. But if you're that beautiful oil and you refine the oil and take out the water and refine the oil and refine the oil, when that spirit, sorry for the breath, when that spirit leaves your physical form, it mixes back with the oil, okay? And when it mixes back with the oil, Believe it or not, it becomes God, okay? 
And when it becomes God, and sorry for the brand, that is heaven. Because basically every religious the, 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 you know, definition of heaven is you get whatever you want. Yeah, isn't that what the divine does? It's like, hey, I want apples. Okay, apples, right? You know, I want, I want to eat butterflies, butterflies, right? Uh, right, and, and, and that concept, right or wrong, by the way, none of what I said here is scientific, just so that we are clear. Right or wrong, that concept gets you to say, there is a part of me, a part of me that doesn't pee and doesn't blow its nose and doesn't feel pain and doesn't, right? And I want to connect to that part. I want to. I want to be more of that, and less of this decaying, weak part of me. That act, that science, is called spirituality. It's a much more difficult science than physics. Why? Because it's not understood in the left brain. Mm. Okay, it's understood like we started the conversation where, in your being, which is found where in the feminine. Yeah, I love that definition. It's a it's a really, a really beautiful one because I really, particularly when you say it's like the the drop, the essence that's in a body, a physical body, and then it leaves. Because I, I'd never really, I mean, I I believed that, but I'd never fully experienced seeing that until I went to go and visit my dad in the chapel after he'd passed away, and I just could see that it was like. It was a shell. He wasn't there. It His wasn't energy him. It wasn't disappeared. Him. It wasn't him. It, it wasn't was like him. a sea yeah. creature had left its shell on the bottom of the ocean. And I, it almost gave me comfort because I didn't want to see him there, you know, not awake. Totally. Not, and I was like, oh, wow, amazing. Okay, so he has gone somewhere better. And that, yeah, it was a very, very weird, humbling experience to sort of see in the really first hand. We're, we're not the car that takes us around the journey. This, yeah. is, the, this is the vehicle. This is not the ilio. Yeah, so true. So to finish, I would love to ask you just two questions, and it's been an amazing conversation, so it'll be quick and <laughs> wonderful. But what is one quote or mantra that you like to live by that keeps you on track? The gravity of the battle means nothing to those at peace. I love that. That's such a peaceful phrase. Yeah, it's the tattoo that he had on his back. Yeah. That's lovely. Oh, yes, I read that. <laughs> read that. The, the tattoo that he was <laughs> scared to show you. <laughs> Until... Exactly. The tattoo that he showed. That was the last thing he showed me as well. And so it's, it's, you know, it's the very last message he gave me. You know, it's, it is really interesting because life, uh, Alice, is a constant battle. Okay. Not a battle where you're trying to win or kill anyone. It's just a battle of trying to find your way. Hmm? And even people like me who, you know, from one side, I'm so blessed. I've been given anything that anyone ever, you know, dreams of. But at the same time, I'm also really not desiring many things. I, I'm, I wear $19 t-shirts. So, you know, how many, how many, how, how many can I buy? And every year, actually, I'm also interviewing uh, the Project 333, so I'm, I'm limiting my life to 23 to 33 items, right? So, so I don't have those needs, hmm? but there is always that constant battle of, did I make the right post on Instagram today? Uh, you know, uh, did I say the right thing on Alice's podcast? Did I, you know, should I uh, work my uh, bum off a little more? Or do I need to do, there is that constant battle, okay? And, and that piece, 
it's, it's, it's almost impossible to express in words. You have to feel it. You have to get to the point where you are at peace. And peace is simply, I can be in a much better place or, or a much worse place, by the way, but I'm so okay where I am. I'm so happy with the smile you have on your face now. Okay, that's it. The world could be burning outside. I don't care. Okay, my, it could be the last moment of my life. I don't care. I could be losing a million dollars in the stock market. I don't care. They're here. I'm happy. You're happy. When it, when time when the time comes, we'll talk about it. Right. That peace makes a massive difference because again, once again, I mean, we spoke about gaming quite a lot. That is what true gamers do. Hmm? True gamers, they plan a little bit ahead. They learn a little bit from the past, but they're just here and now. And when life happens, they turn left and something becomes better or turn right and something becomes worse. But either way, they're completely at peace. You know why they're completely at peace? Because the avatar being beaten and battered on the screen hmm, is not me. I'm here on the sofa holding a controller. Like, do whatever you want to that physical form, who cares? That peace, if you find that peace, you know that the Sufis would say, to die before you die. Mm -hmm. To die is to give up on everything physically. Mm -hmm. To die before you die. That peace, Ali wrote very well on his tattoo. The gravity of the battle means nothing because of peace. I love that. That's so true. Peace is the ultimate goal, even though we have so many outside ones, but it's uh, the best thing to actually achieve if we can. So my final question is, what is one book that has changed your life the most? And not your book, oh, because no. I'm sure that has changed unfair. your life. <laughs> that, that's, that's unfair. Can I say five? You um, can, yes, because it's always oh, nice oh, people yeah. to have enough to read. <laughs> um, I, I uh, you know, many, many, many changed my life. I love everything that Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote. Uh, I love free economics. If you haven't read mm. free economics, you have to read free economics. Okay? At least the first one which helps you understand that not everything that is sold to you, including being on social media and buying products and so on, is, to, is in your favor. It's, it's in, the, in the person selling it to you, in the favor of the person selling it to you. On spirituality and, and happiness, you can't survive without the untethered soul, um, a new earth, and uh, loving what is uh, definitely, definitely uh, Powerful. If you're a man, you have to read uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, and if you're a woman, you have to read uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves. At the right time, it's not an easy read. I haven't read that. You're feminine. You haven't. Yeah, you have, you have to be. It's, it's a very feminine written book. It's very actually difficult to grasp with your left brain. Uh, but it is, it is so beautiful in describing the true feminine, the true essence of the feminine. Uh, uh, what else? Uh, yeah, these are the ones that come to mind now. And there's that one, Soul for Happy. Soul for Happy, just read on your... Right? Soul for Happy <laughs> is a great book. For those who haven't read Soul for Happy, they need to read it because it's just, it's so well put together. I just love it. It's such a great... Uh, so, a so, great now, now I tell people, don't read Soul for Happy. Come and listen to Slow Mo. Because the people that I have on Slomo are so much wiser than I am. It's, it's just like I'm, I'm absolutely loving that experience. Like COVID-19 starts, 
everyone goes into like, right? And I start slow-mo. And it's like, man, this is like, uh, thank you, COVID. You're, you're a wonderful thing for me. It's like, I love it. It's talk to amazing people. They teach me so much. It's wonderful. Don't read so far. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My final question, and it's very short, is what does happiness personally mean to you? Um, happiness to me, ha- happiness is, is being okay with life as it is. Happiness to me is to make other people happy. Uh, I, think, I think life deserves a lot more happiness, a lot more happiness. And, uh, and you know, I've, it's my biggest joy. It's my biggest joy. Well, thank you so much, Mo. It's been so amazing talking to you today. And like I said, to anyone who hasn't read the book, you have to read it and listen to Slow Mo because incredible podcast as well. So it's been so wonderful having you here. So thank you so much. I absolutely love that you made me feel so comfortable. Uh, and I don't know if any of what I said helped anyone, but I know that a lot of what I said confused a few people. I'm grateful for your forgiveness either way. So, uh, thank you. No, it definitely will have done, so thank you. I enjoyed it immensely, too. I hope you enjoyed this episode with the amazing Mo. If you did enjoy, then please hit subscribe and download them all so I can continue to bring you more incredible people like him from all around the world and help you through your own stresses and losses. Stay tuned.